All right, chapter 30. So for all the children who are in here, and the adults, I guess, you can ask, what was the theme of that chapter we just read? That was a long chapter, wasn't it? And there was a lot involved in that chapter, wasn't there? It was, uh, sometimes we read those chapters and we kind of get lost with the length of it. And by the way, it is good that we read the whole chapter together. I think it is really good that we do that. Um, so what was the theme? What, what, was the, what would you summarize this down into one, one sentence? What would you say this is about? Or, or what is it calling us to? And, and I would say the answer is trust in God. Trust, trust in God. It is everywhere here. And then you might say, well, didn't we hear that last week? And well, didn't Isaiah talk about that like three weeks ago? And, and then we're in 2 Timothy. But then before 2 Timothy, didn't we hear that in Isaiah? And didn't we hear that in 2 Timothy as well? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. And so we need to keep hearing the same thing over and over again. And by the way, that is what we are constantly, I am constantly drawing you towards. I'm constantly, every week, I, am, I might look a slightly different, I might take a little different path to get there, but I am calling you and directing you to trust in God. This is really the only proper position for creatures to take before their living God. And this is a message that believers and unbelievers need to hear today. And so we're constantly pulling you and directing you towards if we are to be faithful in presenting God's word to you. So what does it mean then to trust God? What does it mean? If we're talking about trusting God, what does that mean? What does it look like? And there's a verse here that actually summarizes it very well. And it's one of the the main verses in the whole chapter. And I I would say it's verse 15. Listen to these words and listen to to this definition of what it means to trust God. In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. And I want to look at that for a minute. I want to look at the words there to understand what it means to trust God. Well, first of all, God says in returning. And we can call that repentance, right? Trusting God is always, always involves repentance. Turning from self-reliance turning from reliance on anything else and turning towards God, right? And that's what repentance is. It's turning towards God, away from something else. And then there's resting. Notice the word resting there. Placing our whole confidence in something. And for God, He alone is worthy of all of our confidence. So we are to rest in Him. Rest all of ourselves in Him. Our whole confidence, our whole reliance, depending completely on God. And he's the only one who is worthy of that, resting and confidence. And then there's quietness, very similar to resting in some ways, but slightly different uh, nuance to it. This has to do with not being frantic, (laughs) not being like those people who are buying tons of toilet paper, which I still don't quite understand why, but, but not being frantic, not being in haste. Just like Israel was in haste to form an alliance with Egypt because they were terrified of the Assyrians. Well, don't be frantic. Be settled. What is amazing and strange in this definition verse is the outcome. 
is what does it mean when we are trusting in God? What does it mean when we are returning, resting, quietness? Well, it means that we have the key and the secret to strength, to salvation, and to victory. And isn't this so backwards to everything we would ever imagine? How can, how can quietness, how can rest, how can returning, that is a complete abandonment of ourselves in any way, give us victory and give us confidence and give us salvation? How is that at all possible? Because it's contrary to everything we would ever imagine. It makes no sense to us, naturally. But this is where God says it is found. And this is the only place where it is found. In Him. And this is our victory. And this is how we are connected to Christ. And what we've seen in Isaiah is there's a situation here where the faith is being tested. We talked about how this is a drawing us to this whole chapter is drawing us to trust in God. We looked at what trust is and what a, what a small, short definition of it is. And now we see that Isaiah is telling us that Israel is in a position, Judah is in a position where they're being forced, they're being tested as to where their trust really is. Where is their faith? The great, um, powerful, terrifying Assyrians are coming towards Judah. They are going to come towards Judah. And so, and so they need to figure out, what are we going to do? Are we going to trust in God at this time? Because God told them, don't turn to the Egyptians. Don't turn anywhere but to me. Or are they going to turn to the Egyptians? And we need to understand that everything, everything worldly-wise says, if you don't find help, if you don't turn to the Egyptians, some practical, objective help, then you are done for. There is no hope for you. And so here is where our faith is tested, isn't it? It's at times like these that the reality of our faith is put to the test. And this chapter is working from beginning to end to encourage you to trust in God. You might say the first 17 verses are showing you the problem of failing to trust in God. How big of a problem is it if you fail to trust in God? And then verses 18 through 33 are showing us the greatness of the blessing for those who trust in God. And that's one way to summarize the entire chapter here. And so this is really important for us. This is an important lesson for us at times that we live in where we face great uncertainties. And really things haven't changed a whole lot, have they? We are always dependent on God. And he could at any moment um, show us that in a more clear way, can't he? But this virus that has come upon us is an opportunity to trust in God. Yes, use wisdom. But to show the world the hope that we have, that we have a confidence that cannot be shaken. We have a mighty God. And what a great opportunity during this time to do so. So first, how big of a problem is it to fail to trust in God? And first, there are a number of terms used to describe the failure to trust in God that we see in these first 17 verses. And sometimes we don't take failure to trust in God that seriously. We take a lot of other things seriously. So what are some of the ways that failure to trust in God are defined in this passage? Well, first of all, failure to trust in God is to act like a stubborn child. Has anyone ever seen a stubborn child before? Well, the first part of verse 1a says that. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord. And you can imagine that child who just refuses to listen to their parents, right? 
And it's almost as if they want to make a statement. And it has nothing to do, you can't reason with them, there's no reasoning. They just want to defy you. They just want to go their own way. And you can imagine the picture of Judah as a child who is stubbornly refusing to follow God's word. Failure to trust in God is also defined as sin or iniquity. And notice that it's, in, it's sin doubled in verse 1. They added sin to sin. And then in verse 13 it's called iniquity. Failure to trust God is sin. Failure to trust God is missing the mark. It's dishonoring to God. It's going our own way contrary to the will of God. It is sin. And notice that it says here in these verses, it says that they add sin to sin when they fail to trust God. You might ask, what in the world does that mean? How is it not just one sin but another sin? Whenever we don't trust God, we are also trusting something else, aren't we? So it's not only a sin to fail to trust God, it's also a sin to trust something other than God. Remember that verse in Jeremiah that says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and honed themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot contain water. They committed two evils. They had forsaken me and turned to other places that cannot deliver them. And that's what I see going on here. Two sins. We add sin to sin, don't we? When we don't trust God. And that's why God in the Bible doesn't just say, call people to repentance, although that's true. We're to command people to repent, aren't we? Because this is a command. You look at Acts 17.30. Now he commands all people everywhere to repent. This is a command because it is right versus wrong. It is right to trust in God. It is right to repent and turn to him. It is sin not to, isn't it? Failure to trust in God is also rebellion. Notice that in the first part of verse 9. For they are rebellious people, lying children. And that just helps us to clarify the seriousness of failing to trust God, isn't it? It's the sin of rebellion. So at the heart of what makes the failure to trust God such a big problem, that you can call it names such as rebellion and stubborn and sin, is because of what it says about the character of God. We need to understand that failure to trust God says volumes about the character of God, what we believe about the character of God. Failure to trust God is really an assault on the name of God, on his greatness, on his character and his glory. And when you don't trust in God, you're acting as if God was not the all-wise, the all-good, and the greatest teacher. We see this in verses 1 through 2 and verses 8 through 11. The people were acting contrary to God's will. The people were doing their own way. They're going their own purposes. They did not consult with God, and they did not want to hear from God. They just wanted to do their own thing. And notice, it's not as though they didn't know the will of God. It's not as though they didn't know what God wanted them to do. They weren't ignorant of what God wanted them to do. The problem was they did not want to hear what God had to tell them. They had made up their own mind. They didn't want anyone challenging their own framework, their own system of doing things. 
And this is why they didn't want people to stop preaching. Notice that. They didn't say stop preaching. They just said stop preaching the things that we don't want to hear. (laughs) And isn't that the way it works, isn't it? And I think it makes us feel better, doesn't it? Oh, yes, go ahead and preach. But we want to preach things that are smooth. We want to hear things that tickle our ears, that make us feel good, that are comforting and sweet, rather than demanding, rather than judgmental, right? That's the big word in our generation. We don't want to hear things that are judgmental, right? As if the king of the universe doesn't have the right to tell us what is right and wrong, right? As if we had any say in it. (laughs) We want flattering, positive words. Let's build each other up, right? Make us feel better. And so confirm us in our doom and destruction and judgment, right? Because that's really what the outcome of such thinking leads towards. So this is why false prophets are so prevalent. People love them. They say what you want to hear. They tell you what sounds good. They don't preach judgment. They don't preach things that are difficult to hear. They don't preach repentance. They don't preach that there's a judgment that's coming from God and we need to be ready and prepared for that day. What such people are really saying is they don't want to hear from God. And I want you to understand that that is not what they would have been saying. They would not have gone out and said, I don't want to hear from God. I don't want to hear from the Holy One of Israel. They wouldn't have said that. But that's what they're saying when they don't want to hear the actual Word of God proclaimed. When they want to hear their, whole, their, their own things and they want to hear what they think is best. That's what they're saying. And notice, we move from verse 11 that ends with them saying, we don't want to hear from the Holy One of Israel. And then we start verse 12, and guess who's speaking? The Holy One of Israel. <laughs> and it's as if, it's, as if it's, it's perfectly situated there, as if God says, I will not be silenced. You can try to silence me, but guess what? I am going to speak to you, and I am going to speak to you in judgment. If you try to silence me, then you will hear from me in judgment. The Holy One of Israel cannot be silenced no matter what you try to do. And so such people are saying that God is not all wise, God is not all good, and God is not the true teacher. And we need to understand what that means, what we're saying about the character of God when we do that. We often don't recognize the seriousness of false teaching. We don't recognize the seriousness of us only wanting to hear certain things. Because really what we're saying is something about the character of God. And we're dishonoring God. And so it is a big deal how we hear the word of God. We cannot possibly honor God with our lives if we're not seeking to live according to his word. You know, our GPS, our systems, our planning, our directing, our guiding of our lives will never honor God if we don't take his word at the center of all of our plans and of all of our thinking and of all of our directing for our lives. We will dishonor God if he is not the center of our decision making, if he doesn't guide the way we think, if he doesn't guide the way we talk, if he doesn't guide the way we move in everything we do. We dishonor God. When you don't trust God, you are also acting as if God is not the all-powerful Savior, as if someone else can save us, as if someone else is more powerful and mighty to save. And that's what we read, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek the shelter in the shadow of Egypt. 
You know, it's really fascinating when you look at this whole story and you recognize that how many years ago had God delivered them from Egypt? Remember that? God had just delivered them from Egypt. God had redeemed them. He had shown that he is so much more powerful than these, than these oppressive Egyptians who held them for so long. God easily, without any difficulty, delivered his people. He showed his mighty, powerful arm in delivering them. Now they are turning to Egypt and rejecting God? I mean, that is unbelievable. That is unbelievable. What more shameful thing can a people do? And isn't that what we do when we turn to the world <laughs> instead of the God who has delivered us from these things? Such actions are saying that God is not the most powerful, the most good being in the universe. It is saying something about the character of God, whether or not we trust in him. There is nothing more dishonoring than refusing to trust God for our salvation. It is saying that God is not great. The consequence of failing to trust God also helps us to see the big picture of how big of a deal not trusting God really is. And scattered throughout these verses are judgment from God. And I want us to remember that whenever we see judgment, it is really good to see. I want us to remember that whenever we see judgment, remember we went through judges and we talked about this all the time when we did. And whenever we see judgment, we are seeing the way God thinks of things. And whenever the way God thinks of things is the right way to think of things. So judgment is helpful for us to understand things the way we should see things. And so whatever you are trusting to save you other than God will deliver only shame and humiliation to you. You know, you think of all the promises of this world, all the things they promise you. Well, understand this. Understand that all they can deliver to you is shame and humiliation. That's the only profit you can get from the things of this world as far as salvation goes. God says that what his people will gain from their alliance with Egypt is shame and humiliation in verses 3 through 5. And the picture there is them going quickly and hastily moving towards Egypt as if they're on a time limit. <laughs> you know, they got to get there quickly. Remember what we looked at, the definition of trusting God is not being hasteful, being quiet. And here they are hastily moving. They're going to Zone and Hanes, right? The e Egyptian territories. And they're moving with fast haste to get there. You know, time is of the essence. If they don't make it, they're doomed. But what will they gain from this? Well, shame and humiliation. And that is the case with all that we trust in outside of God. It will, it will shame you and it will humiliate you. God mocks the foolish attempt of the people to gain deliverance from Egypt with an oracle about their animals in verses 6 through 7. It is very fascinating that there's an oracle about their donkeys as they're loaded up with treasures. And here they are traveling in this really difficult journey through the desert to get to Egypt. And uh, you're supposed to laugh at this. This is a mockery. God is mocking them. And so here they are with their animals loaded with treasures, making this difficult journey. And where are they going? Where are they going? Where does God say they're going? They're going to Rahab. It's another name for Egypt, who just sits there. 
who just sits there. And that's a joke, by the way. Rahab is a joke. Rahab just sits there. Rahab has no power to deliver you. Egypt can do you no good. They are sitting there doing nothing. One man said it this way. She is more like a fat old grandma sitting in the sun than a savior. Rahab can do nothing to deliver God's people. And that is mockery. There is a place for mockery. And if there is a place for mockery, this is it. This is it. So God compares their foolish attempt to gain deliverance from Egypt like a faulty wall or a fragile piece of pottery that has come crashing down in verses 12 through 14. You know, there's this picture of a wall that is compromised. You know, the wall is supposed to protect you. It's supposed to take care of you. It's supposed to keep you from danger. And here there's a slab that is going to fall down. There's no hope that it's not going to. We just don't know when, <laughs> right? It's going to fall. That's all we know. And as it falls, there's another illustration of a clay pot that is shattered to pieces. It can't do any good. It is all over the place. It is all over the place. No good. It can do absolutely nothing to you, for you. The only thing it does is shame you and humiliate you. And so finally, what we see here is those who are trusting in other places than God himself will find that God himself will fight against you as a mighty warrior. And we see that in verses 15 through 17. Notice how God says here that he's going to rout his own people through his instrument, the Assyrians. And the people are saying, well, we're going to go to Jerusalem you know, if, if Egypt doesn't help us, we're going to go to Jerusalem. And if they get through to Jerusalem, we're going to ride our horses out, right? They have this elaborate plan, but God says you won't be able to ride fast enough. You can escape on your horses, but your horses won't ride fast enough. They will catch up to you. God says you can't escape your pursuers because I am going to be after you. What is left is only a flagstaff on a mountain and a signal on a hill. Basically, basically desolation. Nothing. That's what you have after you've been routed by an army and everything else is gone. Just a flagstaff on a hill and a signal on a hill. So, now let's turn. How great of a blessing is it for those who trust in God? And we're told here, that the Lord is waiting patiently for his people to trust in him in order that he might be gracious to them. We see that in verses 18 through 19. What does it mean that God is waiting patiently to be gracious to his people? What does that mean? You see, God could have destroyed his people at any time, couldn't he have? God could have gotten rid of them at any time, just like every single one of us. God has every right to judge us. But he graciously waits. He graciously waits. He will wait for those who are refusing to wait for him. And we can see in the next line, as he continues to explain what he means by waiting, that this is not an idle, do nothing. <laughs> this is not a passive waiting, is it? This is not a waiting where God is kind of like wringing his hands, hoping that people will respond, is it? He is waiting as he accomplishes his work to bring his people to a place where they will cry out to him for salvation. And I think we can know what it means that he waits more clearly 
from the following words. Notice he says he exalts himself to show mercy to his people. And that's an explanatory word explaining what he means by waiting for them. He exalts himself by bringing his people to the ground, to the knees, to a humble state, through judgment. He brings them low. Why? In verse 19, so that they will cry out to him. That they will cry out to him and realize that he is their only hope. So he's bringing them to the end of their selves. And he's waiting. He's waiting to do so. Waiting through this judgment and this whole process that God is involved in. Why does he work this way? Because he is a God of justice. His mercy comes through repentance and faith and not apart from them. God is working to bring out repentance and faith. And so he will save them. And this actually literally happens, doesn't it? As Hezekiah cries out to God in the last moment. And God delivers them from the enemy. He has to humble our proud hearts before he saves us. He has to crush us, change our desires. God works in us as he waits. God works in us as he waits. You might compare this to a farmer, God to a farmer who patiently waits. Remember, we looked at that in chapter 28. He plows, he tills, he knows exactly where to go. At the end of chapter 8, this is exactly what we saw, where God has, has a purpose and a plan, and he's waiting patiently as a farmer, but yet working at the same time, tilling the ground, plowing the ground. And God's work cannot be frustrated. He's going to fulfill his plans. It's amazing to see him do that. Those who are brought low and cry out to God are those who wait on God. And those are the blessed ones, aren't they? And notice that the word wait is used in two different ways here. One way for God, as he is waiting and working patiently for his people. And then there's the waiting of us who trust and depend on God. Those who wait on God are those who are trusting in God. And those are the ones who will be blessed. And the rest of this passage is those blessings poured out on us. This is the grace of God that he waits to show us, that he waits to pour out on us, is, is just poured out on us the rest of this chapter. An amazing picture of God's grace and his mercy that he longs to show his people. How thankful we should be for God's patience with us. Are you thankful for the patience of God in your life? Are you thankful that God has waited and been patient in your life to show his amazing goodness and grace to you. Those who trust in God do so because they are blessed with eyes and ears to see and hear the Lord as the all-wise and good teacher. We see this in verses 20 through 22. Notice the reversal here, where before we did not look at him as teacher, now we do look at him as teacher. And notice the hiddenness. Before God was doing this in a hidden way, they did not see him as their teacher, but he was teaching them, right? We see that in verses 20 through 21. God was hidden from their eyes. He was teaching his people through the adversity, through the, through the affliction, through the judgment. He was teaching them. But now God has so turned their eyes towards him. He has so worked that now they see him as their teacher. And isn't that the way God works, changing our hearts and our minds so that we cry out to him as teacher, we see him as our teacher, no longer hidden, but now we see and now we hear. We hear God's voice. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. You know you are a child of God. You know you are his when you hear his voice and his word. And notice the opposite between what Israel was doing or Judah was doing before this. Now they listen to God's word. 
We honor God as God when we make his revealed will our chief concern in any decision making in all of our lives. What honor did Jesus bring to the Father when he said, not my will, but yours be done. (laughs) What an amazing statement. How do you know you hear or see the Lord? Well, the answer is plainly given to us. Do you cast aside your idols? That is the greatest statement of us declaring that we hear and listen to God. When we hear his voice, we cast aside what is not true. Because for the first time, and this isn't just an intellectual thing here. This is a heart thing. This is something where we see that God is God. That he is good. That he is king. That he is Lord. And we follow him. God leads us away from trusting in other things. And guess what? God leads us to himself, doesn't he? He is the beginning and the end of the lessons. He is the teacher, and he is the schooling, and he is the, the, the class itself, the material. He is the beginning and the end of everything we learn. All who hear God will be led to safety in himself. And this is how God purifies us from all idols. Only God can make us loyal to himself. And when we do so, we will see all the other religions as disgusting. Pray, pray, pray to God that he helps us to live in this reality today. Because it is a battle. And one day, we will see God in his fullness. And we will completely cast away all competition. Those who trust God will receive the blessing of a gloriously transformed environment from God as well. Verses 23 through 26. This is a picture of the transformed environment that awaits us. And yes, there is a, a small degree of picture of this that, that, is, that, that literally happens after the Assyrians are defeated, right? After the Assyrians are defeated, there, there is this enjoyment. But the image here clearly goes way beyond anything of this world. When the sun is seven times as bright, you know, it's, it's, it's an amazing picture of a, of, of, of a transformed society, of a glorious new creation that is awaiting us. When the curse has been reversed or swallowed up. And so we look forward to that day. What great blessing that comes from God. Those who trust in God will find God to be a raging warrior on their behalf for their safety. What a blessing that is. You see that in verses 27 through 33. Notice the lofty language here that describes God as a raging warrior. He is raging. All the language points to it. Coming from afar, burning anger, thick rising smoke, lips of fury, tongue, a devouring fire, breath like an overflowing stream, sifting of the nations, descending blow of his arm, furious anger and a flame of devouring fire, cloudburst and storm and hailstones, majestic voice battling with brandished arm, having prepared a burning place long ago. A terrifying and awesome picture of God. This could not be more terrifying, could it? It's almost like that worst nightmare you could ever have imagined. But why is God so angry? Who is he so angry at? Well, God is angry at those who oppress his people. God is angry at those who have defied him, at those who have stood against his purposes, and those who have oppressed his people. They are one and the same. And the Assyrians typify those who throughout time have stood against God. The fake pretend kings, 
versus the true king, right? And one day all the pretend king will, kings will be exposed for what they truly are. Look at Psalm 2. two. Kiss the son lest he be angry, right? All will be forced to bow before the king, willingly or unwillingly. These enemies of God's people will go to the place of fire and burning. Literally, this place is lit by the mouth of God. God is the one who brings judgment, not Satan. God is the one who brings judgment. And he has prepared a place for them. So what is the response of God's people to the raging of the Lord? What is the response here? It is rejoicing. It is songs of praise. It is glorious music. God's people rise up and sing of God's judgment that is falling on their enemies. They have a song. They have a holy feast is kept. Gladness of heart as one who sets out to the sound of the flute to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. Their gladness is because the Lord is showing himself strong and powerful on their behalf against their enemies. This is what we are saying when we say, Thy kingdom come. We say, God, gloriously come as a warrior and defeat all our enemies. Imagine after World War II, if everyone was somber and sad that Hitler was defeated. Imagine what dishonor that would bring to the victors. But no, we have an infinitely greater victory that awaits us. And we praise God. Our deliverance cannot be separated from God's judgment on our enemies. What an awesome day that will be when God finally and fully delivers us from all that stands against us. And, and we await that day. We long for God. We say, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. And if he is against you today, notice God is a gracious and merciful God. A gracious God. Cry out to God to save you from your sins. Because there is no worse position to be in than to stand opposed to the Holy One of Israel as an enemy of God. And you're either an enemy of God or you're in the favor of God. There is no in-between. The conclusion here is simple, isn't it? Trust in God. How can you give a better argument to trust in God than his word itself, right? The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. This great message of a God who saves, of a call to trust in him, to look to him, to lean on him, to rest in him in quietness and peace, is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God for salvation. And remember, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What do we say today? What would have been foolishness to us is glory and power and salvation. God is a gracious and a merciful God. Put your trust in him. Look to him. Oh, that our eyes would be opened. That this church would be a light to the world around us because we have a hope that cannot be shaken. So I am calling you today to simply look to Jesus. Jesus said this in John 3, verse 14 through 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. 
Do you remember the, the snake that was put up on the pole and everyone who looked to him was healed from the disease that God had brought on the people out of judgment? And they had to look to the pole and Jesus says, that is an, uh, a picture of a greater reality, that I am the one who is lifted up and all who look to me will be saved, right? Of a greater disease, of a greater problem, an infinitely greater problem. And you see, we look to Jesus to be saved and we stare at Jesus as we continue to live by faith. That is the life of faith. Look to him and be saved. Stare at him and be sanctified and grow. And I encourage you to read Colossians 1, verse 15 through 23. Look at Jesus. Look at him in his glory. Each of us should ask ourselves, am I trusting Christ today? We have a, a real opportunity to test ourselves, don't we? We have, a, we have a, a wonderful opportunity to look to Christ. And isn't it great when he puts situations around us, when we, are, when we are encouraged to look at the one whom we should always be looking at. And sometimes God graciously puts us in situations that we don't like, but point us in the right direction. So here, with this virus, God has given us an opportunity to force us to look more to Christ. It is when we are at peace and at rest that we often don't even look to him. So we praise God for giving us more of an opportunity to look to him and to focus on him. But all of us can look at our daily routines and ask ourselves, am I living as one who trusts in Jesus? It's not just about these great events, but our daily lives. We need to ask ourselves, when I get up in the morning, when I, when I go to work, when I come back from work, when I go to bed, am I living as one who is trusting in God? Or do I claim to trust in God, but not live it out at all? Because we might find ourselves to be a living contradiction. And for you, I say, trust in God. Live a life of faith in Him. Does my life show a pattern of trusting God, or do I live like the world? And I want to say one more thing. Don't misunderstand me. This does not mean that we will not fear. As if fear itself was not trusting in God. In this life, we will fear at times. But it means that we go in the right direction when we fear. You know, it is a reality that we are going to fear. But we do not fear as the world does. We don't turn away to all the things of this world to find shelter and protection. We turn to God with our fear. That is the right way to act when we fear. Turn to God. Look to him. Trust in him. And it is an opportunity to do so whenever we fear. We have a Savior who is not only able to save us, but who delights to save us in order to show the greatness of his character and his glory. And you know what? This frees us to serve others, doesn't it? It frees us to show the world that we are, we are not paralyzed by fear. We are not driven to our self-centered way of living, but we are able to give and serve each other. So let's do that. Let's look for opportunities and know that your leaders here at this church are available and willing to serve in any way we can. If you need help with anything, please call us. We would love to serve and help you. And hopefully we will all do that for each other. And so be a light to the world. Let's, let's be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in us. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of it. We thank you for the days that we live in, God where sometimes the normal things of life are challenged and compromised. And so we feel ourselves on more shaky ground, Lord, when we lose our jobs, when we 
um, find uh, our, our relationships seem to be falling apart when there are diseases that we have no control over. Uh, there are so many things in this world that at any moment could be removed from us, Lord. Um, but we know, Lord, that we have a firm foundation, uh, a, a, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, a God who is powerful to save. And so we look to you, Lord Jesus. We look to you as our mighty Savior. We thank you for dying on the cross. We thank you for rising from the dead. We thank you that you were crushed for us so that we might experience the blessedness of your favor. And God, I pray that we would delight and rejoice in our Savior, especially during this time. And may we be a light and a shining, um, a shining light to the world around us who has no hope in a dark and dying and dreary world. May we shine the light of our Savior that we have a hope that cannot ever be put out. And Lord, I pray that if someone is not saved, that today would be the day of salvation. I pray that they would cry out to you, Lord, and that you save them from their sins. And Lord, may they begin to live a life of looking to you and depending on you. And for all of us, may we lean into you this week, and may we love you more than we ever have before. In Jesus' name, amen.